Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. CBS White House reporter Stephen Portnoy joins us. Stephen, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon to you. Thanks for uh, coming on today and, and chatting about it. Um, Biden picks Harris, and lots of reaction to that. Yeah, uh, the uh, the ticket will make its first joint appearance about an hour and a half from now in Wilmington, Delaware. Joe Biden, who would turn will turn seventy eight in November, would be the oldest man elected president. He has chosen a woman more than two decades younger than him to be his running mate. Kamala Harris becomes the first Black American, Asian American, uh, to uh, sh- share uh, uh, the, the, the spot on the ticket as a number two a VP nominee. And, you know, a lot of people are viewing it as a conventional pick. This is a senator who served for four years from California. Before that, she was the attorney general of California, was the district attorney of San Francisco, someone who's, uh, despite what you've heard from the president and his aides, not known to be a a, a far left uh, liberal, although there is some objective analysis that shows that she is more liberal than most in the Senate. Uh, In the campaign in the last year, she did embrace for a time, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All proposals, the president has already taken that to mean that she believes in socialized medicine. Uh, the president also yesterday said that she is someone who would raise taxes, slash the military. That is a, an attack line that the president and his, his campaign have prepared for all of the possible choices that Joe Biden was ready to make. You know, Stephen, it's funny that you would call her a conventional pick. I mean, it, obviously she's a woman and she's black, and yet she is a conventional pick. It, it's sort of an unusual situation, but I think most observers, while others were, you know, in the running, uh, Biden early on made it clear that it was going to be a woman, and then after George, uh, George Floyd and everything that happened there, a lot of people thought it would be a woman of color, um, and it is, but no surprise, really, right? I mean, it, it is sort of, a, in a way, a safe pick for Biden. Safe because this is a woman who has a, a career in politics and in public life. Safe because she's, she's been vetted by statewide races in the nation's largest state uh, and has spent a number of years in Washington, had a run for the presidency. Uh, President Trump noted that she didn't do particularly well she dropped out in December of last year, and uh, he's trying to use it as a liability for Harris and Biden. The campaign was prepared for the pick and released an ad moments after it was announced, uh, suggesting that Kamala Harris is a phony because during the campaign and during the debates, she hit Biden on his opposition to mandatory busing as part of the desegregation efforts in this country in the mid-1970s. Um, Kamala Harris later reportedly went on to say, well, that's politics. And for that reason, the Trump campaign is suggesting that she's a a bit of a phony. Well, and it is a bit rich uh, that President Trump is criticizing the pick, and he actually donated to one of her campaigns in the past. Twice. And in fact, so did his daughter, Ivanka, uh, who donated to Kamala Harris. Um, Donald Trump gave money in 2011 and 2013. And it, it you know, raises questions, you know, by the way, Kamala Harris wound up later uh, donating some of that money or giving it to a, a charity, I believe, in 2015, by the time Donald Trump began running for president as a Republican and uh, started espousing views that most Democrats said they couldn't uh, support or stand behind. But it's interesting because by 2011 and 2013, 
as one of my colleagues in the press pointed out, Donald Trump was already espousing the, the conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not born in this country. And the idea that Kamala Harris would, would accept money from him, even then, uh, in retrospect, looks a bit strange. So will we see a, a bump for Biden-Harris now that he's uh, made her his pick? We usually see that. And what will a bump do? Because Biden is pretty uh, handily beating Trump in nationwide polling and even in some of the battleground states, he's double digits ahead. Well, if there is a bump in polling, it might be hard to pinpoint and measure. This announcement is coming about a week before the start of the DNC convention, such as it will be a convention. Uh, and, and perhaps if you do see a bump, it might be reflective of both of those things. Uh, the Democrats are intending to do four nights, uh, two hours a night of essentially television programming, um, separate from a, a, a large mass gathering that they had planned for Milwaukee. They're going to do from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. in the Eastern time zone, uh, essentially a, a stacked series of, of televised speeches and other kind of presentations to advocate for Joe Biden's election. Uh, we expect that some of it will be a great deal of it will be on tape. But it will apparently be essentially like a, a, a digital production or, or the kind of um, – I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be filmed from people's homes. There might be studio elements to it. But it's not going to look like a regular convention with a, a large venue and people in the stands and balloons and signs and all that. So it will be essentially a four-hour nightly infomercial aired on television. And many of the networks here in the U.S. have decided to run at least some of it uh, in, the, in the evening hours to offer the American people the opportunity to hear the message of the Democratic Party, and the same equal time will be granted to the Republicans the following week. And listen, uh, if Trump continues to trail in the polls, what rabbit will he pull out of his hat? He is the best at this, probably, uh, distracting and drawing attention uh, away from Biden and Harris, in this case, uh, to his campaign. I've heard some people say, uh, will he announce a vaccine maybe before one is really ready as an October surprise? I've heard some Democrats say that Trump might dump Pence. I mean, I can't imagine uh, that that would would happen and he would go with somebody else to try and and draw attention. But you would think that if Trump uh, Trump continues to trail in the polls much longer, he's going to try something, right? Donald Trump has proven over the course of his uh, career in public life, not just in public office or in politics, that he is a showman and uh, does, you know, has, has a, a pattern and a record of trying to uh, draw the public's attention to whatever it is he wants the public's attention drawn to, and he's proven effective. So uh, I would not be surprised if he does try to do something to try to grasp the, the, the nation's attention. What is an X factor in this is the, the, the measurable a degree to which people are are tired and exhausted of having that kind of showman in the most powerful position in in our government and um, polls consistently show Donald Trump to be an unpopular president and you know one of the things that we're watching for example is just today we learned that Donald Trump's son-in-law and senior aide Jared Kushner had a meeting last weekend with Kanye West. Why is that significant? Well, Kanye West, you may know, has decided he wants to run for president. He's put himself yeah. on the ballot in at least three states, including Colorado, which uh, in the last couple of elections has tended uh, towards the Democrats. And, uh, you know, when Kanye West did an interview recently with Forbes, 
he was asked by the reporter if he sees himself as a spoiler for Joe Biden. And West said he wouldn't disagree with the notion or wouldn't argue with the notion, something along those lines. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, if there's going to be an X factor in this, and, you know, we have this uh, Kanye West trying to run for president, meeting with Jared Kushner, what's, what's all that about? And, and I think that gets to the question you're asking. Absolutely. Stephen, thanks a lot for this. Really appreciate it. You bet. We're shifting gears from American politics to Canadian politics. The leader of the BQ is demanding the resignations of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Finance Minister Bill Morneau, and Trudeau's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford. The Bloc boss says he will try to trigger an election in October if the three do not step down. Uh, This, of course, all because of the WE controversy and new details about a contract for small business rent relief that went to a company employing Telford's husband, and uh, the Liberal government is no longer trustworthy, according to the head of the Bloc Québécois. Chris Adams is a political scientist at uh, St. Paul's College at the University of Manitoba. Chris, good afternoon. Hi, Hal. Nice to be on your show again. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, we just talked to uh, a White House uh, reporter, CBS White House reporter, Stephen Mm. Portnoy, about what's happening down there. And for people that say Canadian politics is boring, it sure isn't right now in Ottawa, is it? That's right. And that was a great interview. I was was very interested in hearing about Kamala Harris and and, uh, the Trump campaign and its attacks. But, But yeah, it's very interesting to be watching Ottawa north of the border that we've got uh, Eva Francois Blanchet, uh, head of the BQ, uh, calling for an election if, if Telford and Morneau and Trudeau don't step down. Uh, one of the things happening right now, Hal, is that we've got the uh, Conservative Party leadership going on. So if uh, Blanchet is calling for an election uh, in October, that means that would be after the Conservative Party convention. And you look at the numbers, like the Liberals have 156 seats in the uh, in the House of Commons. And the if you add the Conservatives and the Bloc uh, numbers, that comes up to just 153, which is three seats short of the Liberal major- uh, minority government. So all they'd have to do is bring in either the NDP with their 24 seats or the Green Party with the three and then two independents. So I'm giving you too many numbers here, but what, what it means is if the Conservatives and the Bloc can just get a couple of more votes in addition to those two parties, they could bring the House down. What has changed, though? Because even a week or two ago, uh, a lot of Canadians were saying, come on, like something's got to give here. But it didn't sound like the opposition parties were interested in forcing election, an election. And yet now, it seems, as you point out, the math seems to work and the Bloc is saying they may do this. Well, that's true. And, and, and the longer you tie yourself to supporting the Liberal government, the more you'll be tainted by uh, uh, this scandal. So the NDP have to be careful. You know, they, you know that one of the problems is we've just come out of an election and uh, there isn't a lot of money in the party coffers, so they'll be hesitant to go in. But, you know, if the Conservatives are um, having their leadership vote in August, uh, we traditionally see a bump in the polls after a leadership convention. So, if it's Aaron O'Toole or, or uh, Peter McKay, or there's still an outside chance of Leslie and Lewis, who's starting to pick up some momentum. Um, if they come out, whoever gets elected, you'll see probably a bump in the polls. And if you have the, uh, uh, the NDP looking like they've propped up a scandal-ridden government, uh, they, they'll, they'll be ruining the fact that they've been tainted with that. 
But yeah, the other thing, the question you raised, Hal, is, is what's different from a week or two ago is, um, as you were mentioning in the uh, in the introduction, the MCAP or the, the fund to support uh, businesses with 25% from the feds giving uh, uh, business rent relief. The fact that one of the senior directors of MCAP, the company, is Robert Silver, the husband of Katie Telford, who's the head of the prime minister's office, um, it means this thing is spreading. It's not just it's not just a rush into having we foundation running one program, but there are now other people implicated. So three people now are being called into question by the BQ leader, not just uh, Justin Trudeau. In the timing of this, you talked about the math. The timing of this might be great for the Conservatives, and I've been saying for a while now. I think the Tories should try and and bring a, a cause an election, cause a vote, because uh, today is Andrew Shear's uh, last uh, sitting in Parliament. He'll be yeah. gone, and then later on this month, when they meet again, when when Parliament sits again, Shear's replacement. Uh, will be in place so the timing the math works as you point out but the timing of this could also really play to the Tories favor that's right and also if you look at the polling data right now you know we're just talking a little bit earlier with your CBS correspondent about Trump's Mm -hmm. declining numbers we've we've got up here in Ottawa we've got decline declining numbers for Trudeau's liberals and he was about 10 points ahead of the of the conservatives back in April and May and now that's been squandered so if if the house does fall if you look at the polls right now it looks like the uh, the the conservatives would be in reach of of the uh, of the liberals so it's uh, it's it's really becoming an un- unpredictable scenario when you look at the different polls and i was just thinking of one by leger uh, they had a poll that came out that, that showed the Conservatives are catching up. We saw um, uh, we saw David Coletto's uh, abacus research showing the same thing, and uh, some of the polling aggregators out there are showing that there's a dip in the Liberal support. So I, I think the Conservatives, if they, if they have a chance to link up with some of the other parties to bring the House down in October, they'd be foolish to let that opportunity go. Mm-hmm. Does this matter to the, and I, listen, it's hard to speak for the average Winnipegger or the average Manitoban. Does this all matter to most people uh, in this city and in this province? Or is it just of interest to people like you, a political scientist, and me, a guy who talks politics on the radio sometimes? Well, you know, if you're reading the daily newspaper or just catching the, the hourly news, you still will be getting some of this. And, and uh, um, it's pretty hard to avoid just the general sense that, that the Liberals are having some challenges right now. So you might not know the name uh, Mario Dumont for the, the uh, Mario Adion, the head of the, the ethics commissioner, or you might not know the, um, the, the name of the company that was doing the rent relief, running the rent relief program, or you might not know that Katie Telford was the head of staff for, for the prime minister. But um, you will have a general sense of what's going on, and, and it would have an impact. Yeah. Chris, uh, we'll watch it closely. Thanks for your time today. Great. Thanks, Hal. Have a great rest of the day. Joining us on the phone, the head, the president of Winnipeg Realtors, Catherine Schellenberg. Catherine, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for coming on today. Congratulations. Uh, I, I realize you don't necessarily deserve the congratulations, but it was a record July here in the province, or, or in Winnipeg, rather. Winnipeg had a July 
a record July when it comes to real estate. Give us some of the numbers. Uh, yeah, so our July sales uh, were up 32% over July of 2019, and our dollar, dollar volume was up 36% over July from last year. So uh, we're really happy to see the activity that we've uh, that uh, has been uh, happening in Winnipeg and surrounding areas. And uh, overall, we're up 5% uh, from the beginning of the year. So our volume's at uh, $2.6 billion so far in the first seven months. And I guess Winnipeg home buyers don't realize there's a pandemic. Well, I, I think they do. Uh, I, well, I know they do because uh, the buyers and sellers and the realtors working with them are following uh, protocols that have been put in place by the province. And, of course, we've taken that to the next level with recommended right. practices for our, our agents. Uh, they, they feel following the protocols, you know, makes viewing the home safe and uh, you know, following the guidelines that are out there. But it is surprising. I mean, these are really surprising numbers. Uh, and I guess my point in asking the question that way uh, is that, uh, you know, it's not stopping people that want to buy a new home from buying a new home the pandemic COVID-19 it's not stopping them and in fact it seems to be accelerating the process maybe there's some pent-up demand you tell me money's cheap why is this happening <laughs> well you got it there uh, money is cheap right now the interest rates are, are really really good and uh, so anybody sitting on the fence that was thinking of buying is is jumping in we're seeing a lot of uh, millennials enter the marketplace, and of course, the Gen X are moving up, and the Boomers are downsizing. and And life doesn't stop, pandemic or no pandemic, uh, as long as people, like I say, are following protocol. and And uh, right now, we're looking for people to to get more homes on the market. Uh, our inventory is down, uh, just and we're seeing record sales. So, just to give you an idea. Uh, 31% of our sales in July sold for list or higher. So anybody thinking of selling, it's a good time to talk to your realtor and get a get a price on your house and a better understanding of, of what you could see in the way of an offer. It's called a seller's market. It is, in certain price points for sure. So uh, our most popular active price point is uh, 3 to 350 and of course, the next one down from that is two hundred fifty thousand to three hundred, uh, which tells you it's a lot of people entering the market for the first time. And uh, so the houses don't sit on long. Uh, days on market has dropped significantly, and uh, where you know the sellers are really enjoying this, knowing that they only have to show their home for a short period of time. And do you think this, uh, and I'll call, I'll call it a buying frenzy, I don't know if those are the words you would use, but is this going to continue? Do you, do you, it wasn't expected, it's happening, and do you see it continuing now? You know, that's a good question. We'd love to see it continue um, uh, with, of course, everybody is in anticipation waiting for the second wave, and the numbers have started to creep up for the COVID cases here in the province. Um, we won't know. We're just going to keep a close eye on it. In the first week in August already, we're, our sales are up 27% from the same time last year. So right now, there's a lot of momentum, and I don't see it slowing t- down anytime soon. 
but of course everybody's eager to see what the fall will bring. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fall typically uh, would be a time of year when things slow down, right? We see an increase in spring. This spring, we didn't see that in April and May. Uh, sales activity dropped because of COVID-19. Uh, so maybe the calendar is a little different this year because of the pandemic. Who knows? Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, the agents usually uh, expect it to die down a bit in the summer, but they're running with their clients and uh lots of showings and lots of open houses. And so there's there's way more activity than we ever expected for this time mm. of year. Yeah. Uh, speak about the Winnipeg market compared to other markets. Like, you know, we know about Vancouver and Toronto. I don't think that's a good comparison. But let's talk Regina, Edmonton, even Calgary to some degree, maybe London, Ontario. Winnipeg in so many ways, and the province of Manitoba in so many ways, not just real estate, but in so many ways, it just chugs along, right? We don't have those big booms, and we don't have those big busts, and it seems like that's what we're seeing with real estate, too, through this. Yes, we're we, we're pretty steady, Eddie, and like they say, all, all markets are local, and uh, with Winnipeg, there always seems to, it always seems to, to move along. And uh, which is great because for anybody that is investing in real estate, it's something to it's peace of mind knowing that over time you that investment will will increase in value. Mm-hmm. Well, Catherine, thanks a lot for coming on. Listen, it's it's great news, especially for people mm-hmm. selling a house. I suppose some people looking for a house might not like it because they might not be getting the house they want. But uh, listen, it, it's good for Winnipeg and, and Manitoba and the economy, again, considering that we, we are in the middle of a pandemic and cases are spiking, yet real estate sales continue to grow. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Thank you, Hal. Catherine Schellenberg is the president of Winnipeg Realtors. Joining us right now on the phone, CBS reporter Wendy Gillette. Wendy, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for uh, jumping on here for a few minutes. I see that you're covering this uh, new study uh, on COVID-19. I find this kind of interesting. It seems like every day we get little tidbits of information. Um, This study says that the virus may linger in the air longer than we thought. Tell me about it. Yeah, it's pretty concerning. The new research finds that COVID-19 droplets travel further, last longer, and last longer in humid air than previously assumed. This study was conducted in August by researchers from a university in the Netherlands and another university in Rome. It has not yet been peer-reviewed, it's important to note, but it shows with 50% relative humidity, small droplets survive 30 times longer than what was previously assumed. And with 90% humidity, the smallest droplets survive up to 150 times longer than what was thought before. So these scientists believe that the six-foot social distancing rule is grossly inadequate, especially in humid air, because the conditions help carry along the small droplets. And I found it really interesting when I was uh, reading about the study that that six-foot rule came from a paper in 1919 dealing with the Spanish flu, and it was based on the spread of tuberculosis. The thought back then was that small droplets would evaporate, but the new research seems to indicate that might not actually be the case, that the smallest droplets may last as long as 10 minutes in the air and may travel as far as 30 feet. 
Wow. And, of course, here in Canada, it's two meters. I understand you're in the States and it's six feet down there. Basically the same thing. I guess maybe we're a little better off than in the States because two meters is a bit longer than than six feet. But that is, and I had never heard that before, that the six feet or two meters came from the Spanish flu over 100 years ago. Yeah, and from tuberculosis, which is obviously so different than what we're dealing with right now. Wow. And, you know, it is it is true. It, we seem to get, you know, we learn more and more about this virus as we go along. And, and uh, listen, in some places in the U.S., things are much worse than they are here in Winnipeg and Manitoba, although we're seeing a spike right now of, of cases. We have fared much better here than most parts in Canada and most parts uh, in the U.S., uh, but, you know, um, we worry about our kids going back to school. I know that's been a story that you guys have covered down in the U.S. a lot. We wonder about our kids going back to school here with, with numbers spiking. But, you know, as we learn things about this virus, um, we wonder, you know, how I, I think at the start of all this we worked hard, but I don't think we worked smart because we didn't have a lot of information. But as we get more information, hopefully we can be smarter about how we, we battle this virus. Yeah, well, they say their research may explain several super spreader events, such as in pubs or in meat processing plants, which they have the cooled air and high relative humidity. And the researchers Mm. say that it's going to be important to control the droplet spread indoors by opening windows and, of course, wearing masks, which we, we know about, to block and reduce the inhalation of droplets. But they also hope that their research... Uh, helps people really think more about ventilation and lowering the humidity indoors. And that's going to be very important in the fall and winter to control the spread of the virus. Hmm. We found out today from our premier here in the province of Manitoba that we'll get more from the education minister tomorrow on the plan for kids when they go back to school. Uh, You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were going to send most of them back to the classroom. Now we don't know. Will they be wearing masks? We're going to find out more tomorrow. Across the U.S., and you've been covering, you know, COVID-19. You're on this new study today, but you've covered various angles on this story, I guess across the U.S., it just sort of depends on the jurisdiction, eh, and the number of cases and yeah. how they're handling the whole back-to-school thing. Yeah, I'm in New York City, and in New York City, they do plan to go back because we are lower, although we were the epicenter at the beginning right. and in March. We were definitely at the center of everything here, but we are on the lower end of the spectrum right now, and, and here kids are going to be going back in person. Uh, in some states, even where there are spikes, there are kids that are going back in person. And in Georgia, you probably saw the the story about the school that uh, the, the the photos went viral. Yes. So you saw the, the mm-hmm. hallway that was very crowded, and now they've shut down that school for several days uh, because they have a, 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 a spike there. Uh, so even in some areas where there are spikes, kids have gone back to school um, and it really depends on the political climate of uh, where <laughs> the kids are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and it does depend to a certain degree how the, the caseload is, but it also depends on the political views of the, yeah. the politicians there that is yeah. shaping how, how people are dealing with this.
Yeah, certainly much more political down there, right and left, Republican or, or Democrat, yeah. red or blue, uh, compared to here in Canada. But listen, I'll tell you, there's people on, for the, the mask uh, uh, issue, there's people on both sides of that here, and some people feel really strongly about, no damn way are you telling me i got to wear a mask, and then other people that, you know, gladly wear it and think we all should. So it's, it's interesting times. Hey, Wendy, thanks a lot for this. Really appreciate your time. Sure, thank you. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.